0: Khazar was a semi-nomadic ethnic that lives in the north part of the Caucasus mountains on 6th century. They were one of the Turkic family which established the Khazaria Kaganate in 7th century due to the fall of the western Gopturk. In the 8th century, many of the Khazars who practiced shamanism finally converted to Judaism. The Khazars have a good relationship with the Byzantine Empire, but having conflicts with the Arabian. Until the 9th century, the Pecheneg ethnic, invaded the Khazaria Empire. This makes the Khazarians turn weaker. The Khazaria Empire falls when the Rus ethnic, under Volodymyr the Great, which has also defeated the Volga Bulgars. After the fall, the Khazar finally disappeared from the history. However, is that really the Khazars disappeared after the fall? There were some theories that may help us to determine, where are the Khazars now? Some theories stated that the Khazars were not disappeared, Instead, they're migrating to the West, and forming the parts of the core of the Ashkenazi Jews' population in Europe. According to an Israeli-born genetist, Aaron L. Haik, he found that the Ashkenazi Jews are the European Jews. They only have 3% similarity compared with ancient ancestors, which connected them with the other ethnics in the Middle East. This means that the DNA of the Ashkenazi Jews can be detected from an ancient Ashkenazi. Some Ashkenazis converted to Judaism, before migrating to the Middle East for establishing a Jew country there. According to Aaron, an Asian DNA is also found in an Ashkenazi Jews. So it can be determined that an Asian DNA is actually the Khazar DNA, which converted to Judaism. Therefore, it was said that the Khazar Jews, have been absorbed into the Ashkenazi Jews. This means that the Khazars, were only disappeared from the history, but not for their people. Some of the Khazars, were also assimilated with Turkic, and Cumans. There were some figures which possibly the Khazars that have been absorbed into the Ashkenazi Jews, such as, Karl Marx, Albert Einstein, Adolf Hitler, Mark Zuckerberg, and many more.
1: chair or a lounge. Got some interesting things to chat about today. I was looking a little bit more into the Ashkenazi Jews, you know, the fake ones, and ran across some interesting information. Seems like our friends have themselves in quite a little pickle here because some new DNA evidence is placing these Jews, not in Israel, but in a region they call Kazgar. okay? And that region is more up around the Russia and Ukraine area. Whoops! I think what's happening is this DNA stuff they're doing is starting to bite them a little bit, right? So, there's been studies done that, and I, I do believe these some of these DNA things are correct, right? And I'll be talking about some of the things to watch for, because some of these researchers are now puzzled about various parts where there is doesn't seem to be much evidence. <laughs> so, so yeah, so uh, this Kasgar stuff is interesting. So I think I played a clip in the beginning of a couple of people in Israel being interviewed, you know, are they are they aware that they're not from Israel, they're from Kasgar. Well, the Kasgar story in a nutshell is this. Around the year I don't know one or two hundred or so <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and 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 just like the uh, Tartaria stuff these maps are all of course drawn by the CIA um, so anyway so yeah so the whole thing with Kasgar is that there was this group that was roaming around up there part of it does make logical sense so yes I've asked Andy if she could help me look a little bit more into Kasgar because you know we don't want to just rush past this lie because the rest have been lies, right? That, that's not how you do research. So, yeah, we're looking at a Casper, but let's let's look at the more amusing elements of that today. So, anyhow, so then I find this um, rabbi guy. Yeah, you know, I mean, he's wearing the yarmulke and stuff, so I'm guessing he is right, A little short Jewish guy. So, um, I first ran across him. He had a video about Casbah, and he was talking about um, he was talking about well, it's philosophy not really history, in other words, meaning this stuff is BS, right? But he's going on, like this is really true, that this area really existed. (laughs) Okay. So then I thought, well, okay, that's kind of interesting. Maybe it did really exist. And then I started thinking, wait a minute here. Is this just another little trick like the uh, Tartaria and all that kind of stuff? What amazes me about that whole Tartaria thing is most of what people are looking at are sketches. Nobody wonders about the sketches. So anyway, so I'm looking at the, um, this you know, fake map and stuff, and it it fits a region. When I was doing those maps the other day, it it definitely fits a region. I could definitely see these people being concentrated in the Russia in that area, you know, those maps that I was talking about. So when things start to make sense, they make sense, right? So that part makes a great deal of sense. So not done with that whole area. So anyway, so yeah, so they, um, they're they saying they were from that region. Now, this could also be a double flip, right? This could be, I think, okay, and of course I'm just thinking right now because there's a little bit more thinking to do about these other people that they're coming up with. Because what got me really suspicious was the same rabbi dude that I saw last night from a video from six or seven years ago, he was all on board with this, right? He was... He was categorizing it as a philosophy, right? But, but he was obviously, he did like an hour lecture on So It, it wasn't like he just casually mentioned this deal, right? Um, his clip that I saw this morning was, he was like, hey, hey, wait a minute, what about this stuff <laughs> so, I don't know. I think it could be something as simple as um, maybe they did come from that region, right? But yet they're claiming they came from Israel. Well, because it's all a lie, right? And so they're saying things like, well, this is (laughs) mind-boggling. Well, actually, it's not that mind-boggling if you consider that it's all a lie, right? So if I were to swagger a guess right now, I would say that it's our friends, the Gypsies, who created this entire deal, okay? Including the Jews including them They created this entire deal And let me tell you this little story about gold because when I was reading up on gold today Because I, you know, I don't really know much about gold except that it's obviously a trick right, but how did we get this idea about gold? <laughs> you would be amazed it actually comes from Egypt. I <laughs> mean just amazing right? Shooting fish in a barrel today So let me open up this file because actually it's good for all of our brains because it's kind of funny And then after I do this part I have some, um, well, let me get to the oddball things I've been kind of hanging around with. I haven't had time for it. Well, there's a new vaccine out from the military. It's the, um, it, they just came out just, just in the last week or so, okay? I don't know how mainstream this became. Um, maybe the people on Bitshoot are yelling about it, but I don't know. If I were you, I would go look at the U.S. Army website, in person unless you prefer to hear people ranting or raving about it yeah it's a it's a very serious deal but anyway so it's available you can go read it there um there's also what got me really going in this is there's a video on youtube and what's going on is that it's fascinating right because and i think they've been doing the hormones like the generation before last, starting with themselves. They started going on the rest of us, I don't know, I'll get back to more specific about that. I'll just give you a vague idea of where I've been going with this. I think they started with the rest of us here, probably, you know, early 1900s when they got all those children loose, right? Um, So, yeah. um, So, there uh, there are some Jewish people now who are clearly Ashkenazi Jews, And they're trying to sound the alarm that, hey, wait a minute, (laughs) we've got all these genetic diseases. And I don't mean to laugh, even if it's somebody like them, I don't find them coming out with a deadly disease to be funny. I'm just saying it's pretty ironic, right? Because for all along, I have said they're making this up as they go along, and they really don't have a clue what they're doing, right? So it's kind of like, I don't know, about 10 years ago when all this DNA stuff started coming out about their own genetic lines and stuff. They have a list of diseases a while long, right? So, um, they, they since then, <laughs> just recently, okay? You know, since, pro- I, I can't remember what, what year this video is from. I don't think it was much before 2007, so I'm not like stretching us back to the 1900s. They seem to me to just be trying to even individually raise this alarm that, hey, we got this huge problem in our gene pool, <laughs> so. Yeah, um, and so they did a, uh, there was a show, and it's called 19 Genetic Diseases that Ashkenazi Jews Need to Know About. Just type those words into YouTube. 19 Genetic Diseases that Ashkenazi Jews Need to Know About. Doesn't it seem kind of odd that individuals are having to come up, and, and doctors have also recently been doing this, but it's not like it's like on everybody's mind, right? So it appears to me that it helps to sharpen my date as far as a hormone because they're obviously publicly saying around this 2007, whatever that year is, okay, not, not that long ago, they're publicly saying, holy crap, okay. <laughs> so yeah, that really gives us a date to look for as far as how long they've been manipulating things for us. Another interesting thing is there's people that are doing TED Talks. TED Talk. If you know anybody who's doing a TED Talk, I would advise you to really think more carefully, okay? TED Talk is their deal, right? So, yeah, people are kind of slipping in little talks here and there. They're probably, I mean, I would imagine the agents are a little busy right now (laughs) controlling everything. So (laughs) this guy is talking about, in this TED Talk, he's talking about the puzzle of the Ashkenazi bottleneck. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, what is a bottleneck? Well, a bottleneck refers to missing parts of genealogy. <laughs> so, I didn't read I didn't watch the entire video. It's like about an hour long. It's called The Puzzle of the Ashkenazi bottleneck in a guy named Jim Stone. And he is basically I I actually kinda of start laughing a little bit because they start pondering. They're saying, This is really mind boggling. <laughs> <laughs> I keep saying to myself, stop laughing. They're being serious. So, yeah, uh, so it's almost kind of like they're discovering these things. And it's interesting. Now, I know it probably appears rude to me to be laughing, but you got to remember, people have thought I was crazy for even thinking these people were up to something for years. So it is validation. So I have to take a little lap here, okay, so, to find out these people, as it turns out, are just slimy gypsies. <laughs> and the deal I got into at Intel, who ran Intel? A Hungarian gypsy Jew. (laughs) I mean, mean, there's some irony to all this, right? Um, Yeah, Andy Grove was a Hungarian gypsy Jew. Um, Yeah, so they seem to be kind of, interestingly enough, ringing these alarms. So, yeah. Um, Yeah, so... uh, And then... um, Another thing I discovered, which is so bizarre, do you realize that this country has an actual movie set on the border between North and South Korea <laughs> they've had it they've had it for a few years um yeah they've ha- they haven't <laughs> just to assert, they, have, they, have a, they have a actual actual working movie set. On the border between North and South Korea. <laughs> and then go look at how many movies they've done about North or South Korea. <laughs> I mean, I really don't know what to say some days, okay? So, um, the movie set. Oh, another clue I keep forgetting to bring up. You know, I used to think it was such a fun thing that God really meant dog backwards. <laughs> Should that have been our first clue? (laughs) Something was up with that word. Um, Oh, another fun fact! Um, Did you know that the U.S. military has golf courses all over the world (laughs) for their entertainment? (laughs) Okay, and I keep meaning to talk about these Robin Hood people. That was that was the perfect money scam. Robin Hood was that group you would have heard about that um, they were those two young guys that started that up and animals stock thing or whatever it was. It was called Robin Hood, right? I think that was to ensnare young people into the stock market. So what happened was they presented them as these up and coming little go-getters, right? The kind that your kid could commit to, right? Well, your kid might be able to start Robin Hood if you are, in fact, one of the founders of the World Bank. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so, yeah, Robin Hood. I mean, please. Yeah, so everybody, next time you hear Robin Hood, keep this in mind. It was completely cooked up, obviously, by the CIA. They're saying they're a young gay couple. I don't know, 30 or something. Two gay guys, okay? I think they gradu It was a perfect setup, right? I think they were Stanford graduates. Well, nobody took it, like, one step further to look and see that Mom and Dad... <laughs> worked at the world bank <laughs> so yeah so uh, and also the part the reason the entire reason i brought up robin hood is not completely random <laughs> is, that, is that where did mom and dad come from well hungary <laughs> so, they were also gypsies so yeah i think all roads are going to lead toward these gypsy people um anyway so let me go on here a little bit um Oh, um, they said that, um, oh, Andy posted an interesting piece I'd like to share with you. And then I'm going to get right into the the fun part. That's the ancient Egyptian, excuse me, ancient, ancient Egyptian jewelry. (laughs) But this is, this is a serious one, okay? There's this thing in the Bible, it's the uh, tears and the, the parable of the wheat and the tares. Okay, you know sometimes if things make sense, they just make sense. Okay. Um, um, it says another parable. He put forth to them, saying, "The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in the field. In his field, but while man slept, his enemy came." and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn so interesting huh oh and also um i didn't you know i'm trying to learn how to copy and paste without a mouse so there's another part of this parable that i don't remember and it says something about uh the tares are also barren who's barren in this picture well the gypsies right anyway i've just tried to do research not predictions so that was kind of a ratty comment but that's what i felt so let's talk about egyptian I pulled a few key questions. The first one was, what are some interesting facts about Egyptian jewelry? Ancient Egyptian jewelry facts. Earrings were new to royalty in King Tut's time and probably were brought from Western Asia. They really go a lot of work on this stuff, don't they? Ancient Egyptian jewelry is considered some of the most beautiful in the world. <laughs> Lapis, lazuli. The most popular Egyptian stone had to be imported. It was not indigenous to the area. Ancient Egypt did not have several kinds of mineral ones, such as silver, copper, tin, lead, even though they produced a large quantities of electrum, which was an alloy of gold and silver, copper, and bronze. So evidently, Egyptians didn't make the gold. Huh, do tell. Wonder where they got the gold from, right? The ancient Egyptians used their expertise to explore for minerals in Egypt and other countries. <laughs> Let the roaming for looting begin. <laughs> so another question I looked for. How did ancient Egypt trade with other countries? Well, interesting we should ask, right? Egypt traded with all corners of the world using gold as a medium of exchange. It was also sent out to allies to keep up relationships and to advance the interest of the ancient Egyptian people. Gold was also given out as gifts to honor outstanding servants, especially great soldiers who wore them as badges. us <laughs> from the beginning, right? Even with their stories, they're telling us how how easy they they won us over with some trinkets. It weren't the uh, didn't the story repeat itself when they um got gave the Indians the trinket the trinkets in those stories? Yeah, except then the trinkets the tr- the trinkets that supposedly the Egyptian gave away seem to have been <laughs> worth a lot. Um, I don't recall the trinkets the Indians in that fake story. I think those were pretty cheap, <laughs> but who am I to say right? One man's piece of glass is another man's treasure. (laughs) It's been hundreds of thousands of years since the first simple jewelry pieces were crafted from seashells, bone, and animal skin. In the years since... In the years since our ancestors, well, I I think I'd like to be left off of this thing. I'm just reading what they're saying. I'm not sure I want to share the ancestors. (laughs) They said, in the years since our ancestors first left the African continent, Egypt has become a dominant civilization in ancient history. They were empowered by advances in technology and access to gemstones and precious metals. Access, right? Access. Access what? To other peoples? (laughs) They were inspired by the culture of royalty and nobles, who had a deep appreciation (laughs) for luxury. (laughs) And it wasn't long before they became the leading force in manufacturing jewelry and creating long-lasting trends. Yeah, I would say this long-lasting trend has really lasted for quite a while. I mean... I don't know, what was that last show I just did about the whole diamond business, right? (laughs) Perhaps the moment that defined the rise in Egyptian jewelry was the discovery of gold. (laughs) I'm not making any of this up, okay? I'm just reading. (laughs) This allowed Egyptians to collect vast quantities of the metal, which was the perfect material to create elaborate Egyptian jewelry designs. I don't know, what year were the Egyptians? suppose I kind of forget. <laughs> the year 20? <20. laughs> That's how advanced they were back then, right? Everybody that these groups say they are, right? So far, I think they're claiming that they were Egyptians, they're claiming they were Phoenicians, Um, they're kind of hinting that they're those Ashgars or whatever the heck those latest groups are. Um, They claim they're the Israelis. So, you know, they picked out three or four groups that they all claim they are, right? But everything but what they really are is gypsy trash, right? (laughs) Um, Yeah, so then I was looking at um, what I was talking about the gold rushes, you know, California and the last show, I just kind of casually mentioned that, um, Australia had a gold rush. Well, actually I was very interested in it. So I thought I would share it with you because what I found, um, hang on one second here. I've got to... I found something interesting about these gold rushes because let me move that. I found these interesting about these gold rushes because, um, Australia had them, we had them big deal about these gold rushes. Sorry, I had to move that all the way. Um. Yeah, so, So because we're talking about gold and how it was, you know, I mean, I'm just guessing here, right? But this appeared to me to be early manipulation to get us to think about the value of gold. I mean, hey, I'm just taking a wild shot at it, right? (laughs) Okay, so first look at what is a gold rush? (laughs) A gold rush or gold fever is the discovery of gold sometimes accompanied by other precious metals and rare earth minerals. That brings on an onrush of miners seeking their fortune. Major gold rushes amazingly took place in the 19th century in Australia, New Zealand, Brazil, South America, the United States, and Canada. I guess in Canada's smaller And smaller gold rushes took, so the the main places for the gold rushes, okay, now these are the same places that we seem to keep looping around. I mean, there's lots of ways to figure time, right? So why is it these same areas that have these concentrations of people moving around to them happens to be Australia, New Zealand, Brazil, South Africa, the United States, and Canada, okay? (laughs) So they obviously are where the pack of the greediest ones of this People are located right so if I was to venture to wonder where the if I was to do a list of where are the countries that the top 10 greedy gypsies live in that would be the country I'd come up with okay (laughs) in the 19th century the wealth that resulted was distributed widely because of reduced migration costs and low barriers to entry but they figured that one out, right? While gold mine itself proved unprofitable for most miners and mine owners, some people made large fortunes. It is just amazing how that worked out, right? And merchants in transportation facilities made large profits. Huh, where does this sound familiar? Kind of like now um, all of them and all of their friends are the ones... <laughs> Well, we've really come a long way, baby, haven't we? Time and time again, they've done the same tricks. And they went on to say, Historians have written extensively about the mass immigration, trade, colonization, and environmental history associated with gold rushes. Gold rushes were typically marked by a general buoyant feeling of a free-for-all And income mobility. Huh, didn't we come back to this point recently? Wasn't that like, oh, I don't know, the 70s? 60s were all about everybody get your own car, you get your own house, we're going to pay you well. Hmm, seems to me (laughs) they pattern that off the gold rushes. It's always about build up dreams and then crush them. Um, And then people live the rest of their lives wondering how they got crushed because they see their people as the ones who wanted the deal, right? So they see somebody winning, but it's never one of us. So activities propelled by gold rushes define significant aspects of the culture of the Australian and North American frontiers. That ties you aussies <laughs> With your American cousins over here, (laughs) that you may want to denounce your citizenship because I think I'm connecting you right now to this country. (laughs) So, and Australia is also a wealthy country, but that you know I'm just trying to draw connections based on research. It just seems a little bit odd, right? All those bases of people going into Australia and then this country and Australia share gold rushes, (laughs) one-trick ponies, right again. So, um. At, me, activities propelled by gold rushes define okay, at a time when the world's money supply was based on gold, <clears throat> here we go the newly mined gold provided economic stimulus far beyond the gold fields, feeding into local and wider economic booms yeah doing. <coughs> They say that gold rushes occurred as early as the times of the Roman Empire, whose gold mining was described by, I don't know, some Egyptian people, and probably further back to ancient Egypt. So now we're finding out that our source of gold is Egypt. (laughs) The people who also heavily marketed a great trove of rare Egyptian jewelry, right? So... I looked at each one of them, so I'll show you what I found. The first one was obviously the California Gold Rush. That was 1848 to 1855. It began in January 24, 1848, when gold was found by James W. Marshall at Sutter's Mill in Coloma, California. <clears throat> Speaking of that, you know, one of the first fires they had in California, they burned down this place. <laughs> I mean... It's not funny because people were there. I, I don't believe anybody was killed. But, yeah, that first fire that broke out in California, they burned down the so-called um, Sutter Mill location. It's in Coloma, California. Look for that. I'm pretty sure that was the area they also burned there. The News of Gold brought approximately 300,000 people to California from the rest of the United States and abroad. Keyword: abroad. The sudden influx of gold into the money supply reinvigorated the American economy. Isn't that kind of what they're doing now with all the fiat money? I don't know, huh? And the sudden population increase allowed California to go rapidly to statehood in the Compromise of 1850. I think what they did was they got all these people here because it was free immigration, And then they were able to get money from them through all of their saloons and stuff that they cooked up. And then they had the money that they had all cooked up to supposedly do this. And or it is all completely fabricated, right? Nobody is alive from 1850 right now. So we really don't know. So just for humor's sake, just hang in here with me, okay? Because it comes to kind of an interesting part. The gold rush had severe effects on Native Californians and accelerated the Native American population's decline from disease, starvation, and the California genocide. I believe parts of it because... It, I I would have to believe it parts of it because I believe this is now eugenics right now, so I can't rule this out and I can't rule it in, okay? But it's interesting that it's scripted this way, right? The effects of the gold rush were substantial. Whole indigenous societies were attacked and pushed off their lands by the gold seekers. The gold seekers were called 49ers, referring to 1849, the peak year for gold rush immigration. Outside of California, the first to arrive were from Oregon, the Sandwich Islands, which was Hawaii, And Latin America came in late in 1848. Of the approximately 300,000 people who came to California during the gold rush, about half arrived by sea and half came over overland on the California Trail. The 49ers also faced substantial hardships on the trip. Yeah, okay, they probably did. Um, um, The gold rush attracted thousands from Latin America, Europe, Australia and China. So agriculture and ranching expanded during that period. San Francisco grew from a small settlement to eighteen forty six to a boom town. They had a boomtown in South San Francisco in eighteen fifty-two and then I don't know what was the earthquake nineteen oh six. So yeah. Boom town crash. Boom town crash. Okay. Roads. Churches, schools, and other towns were built throughout California. Yeah, I think this is true because um, my mom's family migrated from Montana to California, and I don't consider my mom to be like some liar or anything, so. I also have an old picture that I'm going to maybe be able to date uh, because it came from her side of the family. Cause the 1800 area is getting honed in on, so... So they say the new constitution was adopted by referendum and it became a state in 1850. California became a state. Now what's interesting is along comes the Australian gold rushes. Now the Australian gold rush was in 1851. California was 1849 to 1851. How'd that happen? Well, (laughs) significant numbers of workers moved from elsewhere in Australia and overseas to where gold had been discovered, California. Gold had been found several times before, but the colonial government of New South Wales did not become as. Oh, that's not important. The new... Government of New South Wales had suppressed the news out of the fear that it would reduce their workforce and destabilize the economy. So, they knew in, supposedly, Australia that it was already going on. After the California Gold Rush began in 1848, many people went there from Australia. So the New South Wales Government sought approval... Well, what they basically did was they said uh, they offered them rewards at first, okay, and then within a year they said, "Hey, we got gold, <laughs> we got gold over here in Australia." That's basically how there, there's some guy involved in Australia. You can look at it; just look up Australian gold rush. So, what I found interesting, not the crazy story, but was the intersection of those dates, okay. And just the fact that we see all that migration going between this country and Australia. That's all. Just just some connections here, okay? One other thing I've had hanging around for a long time. You know, they use this thing um, called the compass and the square. Okay, If you look at any of this um, Masonic stuff, uh, and that whole thing has been also designed as a major trick deal, all those symbols and stuff. But I do understand enough of them to be able to navigate it all. But, you know, I don't think it's worth spending the next 10 years on. But anyway, so one symbol that you always see is called the square and the compass. It's a square and a compass. Well, what's in the middle of that square but the letter G? Okay. So, I don't know. Hadn't given it much thought, right? So then I thought, well, (laughs) what do they think the letter G means? (laughs) In many English-speaking countries, the square and compasses are depicted with the letter G in the center. The letter has multiple meanings, representing different words describing on the context in which it is discussed. The most common is that G stands for God. I have a parting thought for you. How about if G stands for Gypsy? (laughs) Be safe out there. Goodbye for now.
2: Okay, great. So, uh here's the joke. It's uh not all that funny, but for um, So, there's uh three uh Jewish grandmothers sitting on a uh on a bench. And they're just quietly enjoying the weather. And one of them says, "Oy." And then the, the second one says, "Oy vey." And then the third one says, Oy is mir. And then the first one said, ladies, I thought we agreed we were not going to speak about the children. <laughs> okay, thank you for laughing. Okay, there's actually, it's hard to tell there's laughter because I'm wearing one of these microphones, but actually inside they're laughing. They're really laughing. Okay, so tonight's uh, class is um, uh, uh, something we actually spoke about two years ago. And it was before we started videotaping these classes, so I wanted to reintroduce it. I hope that uh, you don't remember this class, uh, because that'll, it'll be ruined otherwise. And uh, I have to apologize also, because yesterday I had to do a, a very quick trip up to New York. I went up in the morning and came back at night. It was kind of a rigorous trip. Uh-huh. And I... Oy well, is mere, right? And I did not have... And I realized why I like Surfside so much, you know? It's like... It's clean, you know, people don't paint on walls here, you know, there's, it's, but the, um, but anyway, I did not have a chance to make the uh, the movable Prezi that you enjoy normally, so we're going to do old tech, we're just going to do a PowerPoint for today that I used from a long time ago. Uh, one last word, uh, we um, we don't have a sponsor for this week, uh, so the lecture is sponsored by Young Israel at Bell Harbor. Uh, my daughter suggested that one of the first steps toward world domination is to sponsor one of these lectures and i'm speaking to the internet audience as well please uh consider sponsoring a lecture because it's great for the great for the synagogue to uh have a little support as they are building their new magnificent edifice just down the street uh but today's topic is going to but being here as i like to say is is a sponsorship that's tremendously valuable to me. I'm really glad that you come and enjoy the lectures. Okay, so today's topic is a very unusual one. Uh, because we try to focus on biographies, I have chosen a name, King Bulan. However, it's quite possible that Bulan did not exist. Or existed under a different name, and we know very, very little about him as a person. I'm using him as an excuse to speak about the nation that he represented, that is the nation of the Chazars, which uh, represents one of the most bizarre chapters in the long history of the Jewish people. Basically, what we're going to be talking about is in the middle of the 8th century... A large and powerful empire with regional control throughout much of the uh, northern Caspian region, which would be today um, Ukraine, uh, the Caucasus region, and over into Kazakhstan, simply decided to convert to Judaism all at once. And they remain Jewish for several hundred years. We have a lot of corroborating evidence that this actually happened. Um, for example, the, uh, there was a huge shortage of of uh, matzah balls throughout the rest of Europe. As there were no, okay, I'm sorry, it was a really long trip. But no, we have lots of corroborating evidence about these Khazars. And then suddenly, in the 13th century, they basically disappear. Now, what happened to them? Where did they go? Uh, It's a a topic of considerable controversy, and I'd like to kind of walk you through the sources and show you what little we know about the Khazars, and uh, then we'll have to leave at the end of the hour with a lot more questions than answers, but nevertheless, it is a fascinating and unusual chapter in our long and storied history. So the, the story of the Khazars was made most famous some 400 years after their initial conversion. And it was made famous through a literary event, the publication of a book called the Sefer Hakuzari. Kuzari, of course, means the the Chazarite, the the person of Chazaria. And it was written by Rabbi Rabbi Yehuda Halevi um, by means of some kind of complicated discussion with a, a mysterious Yitzhak Sangari. Basically, what the Sefer Akuzari purports to be is uh, the extensive dialogue between the king of the Khazars and representatives of all of the world's great monotheistic faiths. Uh, after an extensive debate with a Jew, a Christian, and a Muslim, it sounds a little bit like an off-color joke, Ultimately, King Bulan decides that he will in fact convert to Judaism and he takes his nation with him. Now, the, the book itself is not a history text. It's not uh, purporting in any modern sense of the term to give an accurate and... Uh, you know, objective account of what happened in Khazaria in the 8th century. It is not, as the uh, historian von Ranke put it, wie es eigentlich gewesen war, the way it actually was. Not actually trying to say that. Really, uh, the author, a famous poet and philosopher, Rabbi Yehuda Levi, was using this as a literary conceit, to uh, expound upon uh, a religious triangular dialogue, and he wanted, essentially, uh, Judaism to have an excuse to compare itself with the other world faiths of, of uh, Christianity and Islam. It's not coincidental, of course, that he wrote this in Spain, which is the world's great triangular culture for most of European history. You know, Spain has, uh, very strong populations of Christians, Muslims, and Jews. And so this three-way debate was very au courant for the time. And he used this story of, um, of King Bulan. As a device in order to allow the Muslims to have their say, and then the Christians their say, and the Jew, of course, would then, uh, do away with their arguments and demonstrate that, uh, Christianity was, or Judaism was clearly superior. To give you one example of a, a classic argument, one that I find actually rather convincing, um, when I think about these sort of things, uh, one of the arguments that's made in the Khuzari, if I remember correctly, is that you know, all of the other great monotheistic faiths rely on the testimony. Ultimately, rely on the testimony of a single man. In the case of uh, the Christians, it would be Jesus, and uh, especially Paul, who never actually met Jesus in his lifetime, but had a vision of him. You know, on the road to Damascus, as we discussed a few weeks ago. Or in the case of Islam, it's Mohammed, who has an encounter with the angel Gabriel. Gabriel, same angel as in the Jewish pantheon. And uh, ultimately, you know, the testimony of the ver- veracity of the faith relies on one or a small group of people. Uh, the Kozari argues that this is one of the big differences with Judaism because you have the account of the Aseret HaDibrot, the Ten Commandments, where you have six million adult male Jews, and of course their wives, their families, all there at Mount Sinai receiving the Torah at once, all claiming, according to the Midrashic account, to have heard the first two commandments directly from God, and uh, then afterwards, you know, through a, a mediation. And so the Kuzari argues, you know, it's one thing to have one person, so to speak, make up a story and have lots of people believe it. But can you imagine... Six million people, six hundred thousand, excuse me, six hundred thousand people, approximately three million if you include children and people of all genders, so to speak. You know, if you have three hundred thousand, how many is it? Six hundred thousand, three million, about three million people hearing it and reporting it. And if that isn't enough, they're all Jews. And you can imagine Jews all agreeing on one event like that, recording it for posterity. That's, uh, an interesting kind of, uh, argument I think for Judaism. But that's really what the Kuzari is about. The Kuzari is not about the history of the Khazars. He just uses it the story as an excuse to speak about the Khazars. So what we're going to do is we're going to go back in time and try to actually understand what happened in Khazaria. Why did these Jews convert or why did these people convert to Judaism? What kind of Judaism they practice and so on. So here's a map that shows you exactly where the Khazarian Empire uh was in the, at the time of conversion, about 740. Um, Here is Kiev, way up here on the top, the Black Sea, the Caspian Sea, the Mediterranean is over here. If we extended this down, Israel would be, you'd have, uh, Israel be right about here, I think. So, it's a big chunk of territory. It includes what would be called the Caucasus region here, countries like Georgia, maybe a little bit of Azerbaijan. Uh, All of the... uh, eastern side of the Ukraine meaning the, uh, the s- eastern of the Dnipro River and well into uh, what would be uh, the Don Re- River region of uh, Russia the Russian Empire and out here into Kazakhstan very very large territory in the eighth century and um, the, uh, in fact, there is a, a very significant historian of the period, the late Omelian Pritzak of Harvard, who argued that Kiev itself was founded by Khazars. Which is a great irony. If you can imagine that this, you know, the Kiev is really the mother city of the entire Russian civilization. Ukraine, of course, Belarus and the Russian Empire as well. And the, I think that it was originally a, a Jewish trading outpost is quite amazing. But of course, in Kiev, we have a lot of arch- archaeological sites and long-standing traditions that a certain place is called the Chazar Gate and this is the Jewish quarter and it goes back hundreds and hundreds of years long before we have uh, Eastern European settlement moving into the region. A very very old Jewish community over there. So you can see it's not an insignificant little territory that became Jewish. It was a really large territory at the time. I think that would probably be some like, something like the size of let's say France. It's a very large area, maybe France and Germany combined actually. So, you know, people have been fascinated with lost Jewish tribes as long as there have been lost Jewish tribes. And that is basically from the 8th century before, well, I said 7th, but I meant the 8th century before the Common Era, when the 10 northern tribes were dispersed throughout the ancient Near East. And ever since then, various cultures of all, many cultures have purported to be the inheritors, genetically, culturally, historically, of those 10 lost tribes. But none of them have really been, you know, uh, demonstrated as accurate. Although there is some f- fascinating new material coming out with DNA analysis, looking at various populations to try to determine, uh, how likely it is that they are in fact Jewish. And especially in Africa, there have been several populations that have been dent- identified as having a very high statistical relationship to, uh, contemporary Jews. The Arab h- historians, who again, this is not a secret to historians, everyone's aware that there was this Khazar Empire, it was Jewish, they opine that the uh, Chazars must have been the children of Keturah. In rabbinic teachings, uh, Keturah was the name of Hagar, uh, Abraham's second wife, that after he sent her away with her son Yishmoyel, and then uh, she came back and her name was changed to Keturah, which means kind of like pleasant-smelling incense, and then she had a whole bunch of of children with Abraham. It is mentioned in the Bible that he married Keturah, and um, and then the children went east. So it makes sense they could land in. Um, they could land in the Hazarian region, but there's there's no way for us to really determine the, the truth of that. Other historians argue that it might be the children of Yafet, uh Greece. Mr. Rodriguez, you have a hard question?
0: Um if it, if it comes from Arab historians, yes. then Keturah is a whole new person according to the Quran. She is not Hagar. Oh really? Hagar, Sarah, and Keturah.
2: That's really perceptive. Did you hear that? Yeah, this is why this is a kind of gradually produced at, at Turo College South. He's now a a, uh, a graduate student at FIU. So I'll just mention this. By the way, I did get a, a, re- a request from a woman who does a really fascinating... I just got it today um, on the Internet. Uh, she wrote, she says, really enjoys the lectures. I wish I could remember her name now that I'm speaking to her. But she says, could I please repeat the questions so that uh, you can hear them when you watch them on the web? So the uh, the it wasn't so much a question as an observation that if these are Arab historians, which they are, the... Uh, the Arabs believe that Keturah is not the same person as um, as Hagar; that is a totally separate person. Um, but still, it makes sense that these people would be the children of Abraham, uh, albeit not through Hagar. Fascinating. And by the way, this woman that wrote to me—again, I'm sorry, I forgot her name. She do, she likes these lectures because she makes um, she has a dance company, and they do Jewish historical dances based on. Famous Jewish women, and so my lectures have been like really useful for her. You know, the one on daughter of Rashi and things like that. So that's kind of cool. Don't dance. Don't. uh, (laughs) I will now do my. Okay. No. Okay. So. other documents we have about uh the Khazars besides the the Kuzari uh we have an interesting piece of correspondence between Chastai ibn Shaprut who was a very important Spanish Jewish uh politician uh and a, uh, a, a one King Joseph in Khazaria who re- who gives another version of the story in fact this is probably the uh the ur text that uh, Yehuda Alevi worked with when he wrote the Kuzari, he relied very much on the account that Hasdai ibn Shaprut, uh, had fulfilled. Hasdai ibn Shaprut is a, a, an excellent example of the kind of achievements, uh, that were, um, that are associated very closely with the Golden Age of Spain, where Jews were, uh, unlike any other time really in Jewish history, with maybe a possible exception in contemporary America where you begin to see this bit by bit, um, you have people who are like of incredible stature. As religious Jews, meaning they, they contributed literature in Hebrew about the religious texts and so on, and at the same time, very powerful, influential politicians in the secular realm. Hasta ibn Shaprut, Shmuel ibn Nagrela, uh, to a certain degree, Yehuda Alevi, Shlomo ibn Gabriel. There's a whole list of people who really achieved, you know, greatness in both worlds. Here in America today, we have a little bit of that, let's say with, you know, Orthodox Jewish popul uh, Politicians reaching great heights, things like that, but, uh, it still pales in comparison to Spain. Anyways, Chasta Ibn Shaprut was, um, an extremely important diplomat. He had tremendous linguistic skills, and as a Jew, he had international connections with Jewish populations the world around And, uh, he would conduct, on the behalf of the, the Spanish vizier, he would, or political authorities at the time, because Spain was, well, I'm not gonna get into that detail, because I don't, let's just get off the topic. Chastai ibn Shaprut sent out correspondence to many Jewish communities uh, doing research on what's out there and what kind of possibilities there were for trade and so on. And he got possibly two responses from the Jews of Khazaria, and this is already like in the 9th and 10th century, and uh, the the response he gets is apparently an internal Khazarian story about how they became Jewish. And the... Um, the 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 version that's received there is that King Bulan did in fact have this debate with the three uh, representatives of, of the great monotheistic faiths and then he decided to become Jewish and his royal court followed him and then slowly bit by bit the country as a whole became Jewish. Yes, Ms. Abramson. Why did he only do monotheistic
0: religions and
2: not as well? That is a Characteristically brilliant question, uh, Ms. Abramson, because poly- the question, I will repeat now for all dancers in New York, uh, the question was, why did he only uh, invite the, polythe- the monotheists to the debate? I mean, the polytheists were around a long time. There's lots of idol worshiping going on. Why are they not called to the party? Why only the monotheists? Let me see if that goes in terms of the lecture I was going to give. No, I'll, I'll just tell you. I'll answer the question now. Oh look at this! Messed up my PowerPoint. I got to go back here to this one. Let's go to this one here. Right. Um, the answer is because it was clear that polytheism was rapidly going out of favor. Polytheism was clearly an ideology of the past. Uh, the great monotheistic movements, especially Christianity and Islam, were expanding a pace very dramatically. I'll show you in a few minutes. Oh, you know what? I have to show you the map now because I can't answer that question without showing the map. The, uh, the, base, the short answer is that the monotheistic faiths were expand- at such a dramatic rate that the polytheists were uh, afraid that they would be simply swallowed up. Oh, here we go. Okay. Why convert? Oh, it won't go backwards. That's the problem. I'm using my iPad instead of uh, my regular computer here. Here we go. So have a look at this map here. Uh, we looked at a version of this earlier. Uh, if you consider where Hazaria was, right up over here in this region, going up into Ukraine. So Christianity, uh, starting out in Rome basically, I mean from Israel over here to Rome, has taken over all of Europe except for Spain and is pressing with great uh, progress towards northern uh, Baltic states like Lithuania, Latvia and so on and pagans are just converting left and right because the, the Christian faith with life after death and a just God, and prayer, and things like that, was ultimately far more appealing. Especially the idea of belonging to a global faith, you know, with a very consistent, coherent ideology. You compare that to polytheism, with its multiple gods, and and multiple narratives, and uh, really no re- real place for human beings in it, it was very weak. Uh, Islam, at the same time, is expanding incredibly dramatically. We're talking about 740, right? So, this purple area, it starts in 622, and this purple area really measures what it's like in the year 750. So, Islam spreads, you know, like in a viral way, as it were. It becomes so popular as, as it, it conquers regions and as people willingly give themselves up to become Muslims. So here's Hazaria sandwiched between Christian Europe and Muslim Europe and they have to decide, uh well, are we going to become absorbed in a larger Muslim reality, absorbed within a larger Christian reality, or shall we try to stake out our own kind of independent region by adopting Judaism. That was their strategy. According to most historians, that's probably the most reasonable... Uh, you know motivation for it, and in fact it seemed to have worked. We should recall that both the Christians and the Muslims had special reserved status for Jews. That the uh, uh, the Jews under the Christianity were preserved under the doctrine of witness that was authored by Saint Augustine. The idea that the Jews should be allowed to practice their religion until the second coming of the Messiah, and for the Muslims they had the doctrine of the Dhimmi, the protected people that Jews were allowed to practice their religion because they had once received you know, an authentic communication from God. And so the, the Khazars evidently thought that this is probably the best compromise. We won't be absorbed in Christianity. We won't be absorbed in Islam. We'll be able to maintain our independence. And they did maintain it for about 500 years, which is huge. If you think that America is only about 300 years old as a country, and Khazaria is 500 years old Jewish, that's pretty impressive, I think. Does that answer your question, Ms. Abramson? Excellent. Don't ask for the car. <laughs> okay, so let's go back to where we were. Now, another fascinating area uh, where we get sources on the Khazars. This will take just a little bit of background information. Is the um, amazing Cairo Geniza, which is one of the the really uh, most dramatic. Uh, discoveries in modern times, not just for Jewish history, although it's especially good for Jewish history, but also for um, Mediterranean history as a whole. Just a little bit of uh, background information, Uh, the halakha is, Jewish law requires that anything that is holy may not be discarded. It has to be treated in an appropriate manner when it is no longer usable. Uh, Specifically, holy books uh, may not simply be thrown in the trash. They have to be buried in a Jewish cemetery. They have to be treated with respect and, and uh, given, as it were, a, a proper burial. That's the only way that you're allowed to get rid of them. You can't simply throw them away. So in uh, most synagogues and uh, observant Jewish homes, there will be a place where you store all of the old books until there is time to bury them, and then they're transferred to the funeral home and things like that, and they're, they're buried. Um, this storage place is called the Gneza. From the word leganos or lignos, how would you say that, Stephen? Lignos. lignos, so which means to to store away, to like keep as a treasure kind of thing, and um, that's what people do. They have these things called the geniza, and then from time to time they empty out and bury them. So near Cairo, there was a synagogue that um, had uh, they had a custom in this particular region that not only would they treat holy books like that, you know, Torah scrolls or, or you know, printed books at this time, uh, but they would oh, treat anything written with Hebrew letters. Anything written in Hebrew was considered holy and therefore they saved it all. And they would put all of these documents, again, they're not producing paper like we do today with printers and so on. You know, a manuscript was still a significant thing that uh, required a lot of energy to produce and to care for and so on. But anything written in Hebrew... Including shopping lists, uh, marriage contracts, business arrangements, and of course a whole host of religious documents were simply stored away in the attic of a synagogue near Fostat. And uh, there was some kind of legend that uh, circulated that there was like some kind of serpent up there that anyone who went up would be bitten and it would, you know, be their end. Uh, but some uh, English travelers, you know, British English travelers, made their way there and insisted on having a look, and this is actually the opening to the Geniza, it was kind of like an attic, and they went up and they found literally hundreds of thousands of documents covering several centuries of Mediterranean history. All written with Hebrew letters, but of course dealing with things both religious and secular. Uh, It was a, a find that astonished the scholarly world, and within a short order, by the turn of the uh, the, ni- the 20th century, uh, it was all carted away and uh, is stored in some of it's in, I believe, uh, uh, in New York, in Leningrad, and I believe London has some pieces of the Geniza. But amazing things, they're still going through these documents trying to figure out what they mean. About 250,000 fragments, and by comparison, there are about 100,000 documents for all of Arabic history. So, uh, <clears throat> in this one Geniza, you have more than two and a half times everything we know about Arabic history. So it gives you a sense of how the the historical world relies on the Geniza to understand things. Um, The texts are difficult to use. Oh, here we go. Yes, there are some in Cambridge, in New York, and in St. Petersburg. Uh, They're fragmentary. They're often damaged. That's why they were stored away, because they could no longer be used. Um, And... um, they uh, they're written in several languages, even though all in the Hebrew characters. Uh, you have, of course, Hebrew documents. You have Aramaic documents, and you even have Arabic documents. You know, people writing using Hebrew letters um, to express statements in Arabic, which was not an uncommon thing. Many medieval documents written by Jews use the Hebrew alphabet, even to write in English or in French. Uh, they'll just use Hebrew as it were. As it were. So.
1: Write
2: the answers in, the, in, the, in the Hebrew characters yeah. in order to get through to the test in Spanish, in grammar, in biology, or whatever. Oh, well, that's that's very funny. So the comment is... Don't, don't, don't right, right. In Mexico, well it wouldn't work in her school, but in Mexico, uh, they'll, you know, if they need to write down the answers for a test, they'll write them in Hebrew and then you can just look at it afterwards. Very good. Okay. The contents, as I mentioned, you have religious texts, uh, you have uh, manuscript copies of things by uh, the son of the Rambam and the Rambam himself, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct, Mr. Rodriguez? Not sure. I think they even found some pieces of the Mishnah Torah in there.
0: Yeah, they have actual writings from the Rambam.
2: Yeah, that's ha- amazing.
0: Handwritten from the Rambam. That
2: Maimonides' own handwritten documents. Uh, astounding. Business papers, legal documents, uh, lots of letters that were sent to Egypt because you know a letter could come from England, let's say, written in Hebrew, it would arrive at a home in, in Cairo, and they would send it away, uh, put it on there. Uh, personal megillus, personal stories, biographies, autobiographies, things like that, and even some scrap paper with doodles on it, if you can believe it. And the scope of the coverage is the entire Mediterranean basin. We're talking about, in the neighborhood of eight, about the 500 years of this entire region recorded in this treasure trove. So what does it have to say about the Khazars? Because this it corresponds. So this is one find, from the Geniza, that's pretty interesting. It's known as the so-called Kievan letter uh, because it seems to have the word Kiev written in it. Unfortunately, it, the word Kiev is written at a spot where it's smudged and a little bit damaged, so you can't tell for sure if they're really trying to say Kiev, but it is a letter from a Khazar going to uh, the region of Fostat, and it's a letter of introduction. Actually, it is what we would call today a tiuda or a Petek. Um, and we still use them in Jewish society today. It's essentially a letter attesting to the bona fides of the, the, um, the holder of this letter, saying that he is an upright individual who has fallen on hard times and he deserves the support of the Jewish communities that he visits. In other words, this was a, a letter that belonged to a Meshulach, a charity collector, and he was schlepping around different parts of uh, of uh, the Mediterranean basin, showing the letter to people, saying, listen, I'm from Khazaria possibly from Kiev, and um, could you help out a guy? And he would ask for a dollar or so, show up at the shul at 7.30 in the morning, and then go to another shul, and you know, and you collect money. So that indicates that it's probably authentic. It's, you know, it's a well, and it shows you how long Jews have been doing this. It's a well-worn Jewish tradition to have one of these documents of introduction and ask people for funding. Uh, now, one of the most fascinating things about the letter, though, which tells us more about Khazarians. firstly, the idea that, you know, uh, it was from Chazaria is fascinating. But look at this fascinating thing at the bottom here. At the very bottom, Uh, It says, in Turkic runes, not in Hebrew, but in Turkic, uh, this phrase, which I'm not going to try to pronounce because I have no idea, but apparently the translation is, I have read it. So what could that possibly mean? Here's this document, written in Hebrew, and at the very bottom, there is a signature that says, I have read it. What do you think, Stephen? Uh, So we see... It's a receipt in Turkic. So who's receiving it? Who's... I forgot to mention, by the way, the names of the guys who are writing it, they're like weird Turkic names, like pagan names, and then it says, hakohain, you know, like, like, I don't know, uh, Sviatoslav, hakohain, you know, things like that. So, that combined with this strange phrase, I have read it. Well, when you look at a tuodot today, what do they say on the tuodot? Besides, they describe how this person. Please. About Mishul yeah, Mishulachim. when but they have the rabbi's uh, endorsement? Exactly. That's precisely it. There's a little. It's a little bit of letterhead. It's at the bottom, but it's like the rabbi, so to speak, or the head of the community, or someone wrote. Yes, I approve this message. <laughs> My name is Svarzislaw, and I approve this message, right? And that's what it is. It's an endorsement by. A, uh, a, a prominent Chazar Jewish official. And yet, he writes it in Turkic and not in Hebrew. So how did this document get created? What did this document mean? How did it work? Okay, this is like, this is an undergraduate class. Everyone, don't, nobody make eye contact, because that's the first thing you can do wrong, right? Joseph, who do you think actually wrote this letter? Like, who actually penned it to paper? The guy probably, the, the holder of the document, probably does not know any Hebrew. Mm-hmm. So who wrote it? A scribe. A scribe, right, or a rabbi. Some a professional author who you would go to, and you would speak in Turkic, and you say, listen, I want to go to Fostat. I hear they have a lot of rich Jews there, and I want to collect some money, so I need you to write down my story. So he goes to a scribe. And the sofer writes it down in proper literary Hebrew. And then he has this document. Then what does he do with it? Because he wants to authenticate it. He notarizes it. Yeah, he goes. He takes it to the head of the Jewish community. And he says, would you please you know, indicate that you approve of this message? And that's what this is. So this little phrase here is from the head of the Jewish community. It's not signed. Uh, well, it has his signature afterwards. has his name afterwards. But it says in his own writing... I have read it in Turkic. Which uh, what ultimately does that mean? The fact that it's in Turkic. Everyone should
0: understand.
2: Uh, well, yeah, but they, did, did he know,
0: Hebrew? They don't know Hebrew?
2: They don't know Hebrew. Exactly. It says that the head of the community is ignorant of even very basic Hebrew. And so, this is something that many historians have concluded about Hazaria, that the conversion was very, very shallow. <laughs> that they probably did not really engage in a deep, meaningful conversion. It probably was for political purposes only. Uh, it may have been just like a quick dunk in the Caspian Sea for a mikvah, and that's it. And there's certainly significant elements of Judaism. You have a scribe there who's writing these letters. They do know how to collect money. That's important. But the, the actual depth of the conversion is limited. Ms. Abramson
0: shows that because it just shows that the people who are looking at this letter afterwards to give the money need to be able to understand the Turkic at the bottom and say, Oh, the rabbi approves this, so we approve it. It's saying more that the people they're getting money from don't know who not the rabbi.
2: Good argument. So the the argument Ms. Abramson uh, theorizes that uh, it's catering to the readership, the fact that it's in Turkic. And so it doesn't say, that's like if the rabbi today were to write in English, I approve this message. That would be very true, except that we're talking about Fostat. It showed up in Egypt. And they don't speak Turkic there. They speak Arabic there. So if he had written in Arabic, then you have an argument. But it this is probably the case. And I have to say, I cheated a little bit because I did some more reading. And there are lots of indications from, for example, the travelers uh, Petakhi of Rexensburg and um, Benjamin of Tudela that we spoke about a while ago, that they come to Khazaria and they can't believe uh as they put it back then, the Schwache how difficult the uh the extent of Jewish life is there. That they have very few schools, they have very few mikvaut, it's really hard to find good kosher Chinese food anywhere, and they say obviously this is not a very advanced Jewish civilization at all. There's even some question from some of the travelers that uh did they even practice circumcision? And circumcision is one of the most basic rituals of Judaism. It, in fact, you know, it, it's usually one of the last rituals to go as Jews become more and more assimilated. They will still <coughs> practice circumcision until the bitter end, so to speak. Uh, it's, it's one of the last things to go. Excuse that a partial pun there. I didn't mean that. Um, and there And there's a lot of... Uh, so it's it quite possible that Hazaria was not really that deeply religious. In fact, most of the evidence, the probanis of the evidence, indicates that that is the case. Uh, the Hazars also may have been fairly pluralistic in terms of Judaism, as we shall see later. There have been some confusing finds, too, like, for example, uh, this find of a coin in the, the region of Itil, the capital of Hazaria. Um, wow! Isn't that like That sells it all, right? You see the coin? You see the symbol on it? It's all over, right? They're totally Jewish. Problem is, the Star of David was not a traditional Jewish symbol for about another 800 years. You know, we didn't use the Star of David to represent the Jews. You see, uh, the menorah, you see like the hands of the Kohen, but you don't see the Star of David. So this is quite likely simply a pagan symbol of the time. Six-pointed star. It happens to look very Jewish. It makes, you know, it makes us feel warm and sort of like, ethnically connected, but it's probably not historically accurate. Yes. Could
0: this be like its origins?
2: Could of, this be its origins?
0: Of becoming a Jewish
2: symbol? Uh, it's a brilliant theory. You could probably get at least one graduate paper out of it, but I think it would be a stretch to say yeah. this is the origins. I mean, a six-pointed star is not that complex an icon. I'm sure many cultures have it. Yeah. To look at another example, uh, the swastika that has such you know, dire negative connotations to us in in the uh, regions of India, the swastika is considered a symbol of progress, right? Like a walking wheel. And they don't have any of the negative connotations. There are even some synagogues that have been discovered with swastikas in the uh, tile inlay, you know? Obviously built before the 20th century, but uh, it was considered not necessarily a negative thing. Okay, Um, now the... um, one of the big questions is maybe the Khazars were Karaites because uh, ironically this what this all happened at the time when the Talmud was being written not so far away right this is happening in the northern Caucasus region and the Talmud is being written I don't know how many miles but maybe 2000 miles away in the Mesopotamian region it's not so far Uh, you know, the Jews are corresponding between Spain and Babylon. Can't they correspond with Hazaria? Why do we not have more geonic? correspondence with the Khazars. How come nobody seems to be really interested in the fact there's a whole Jewish kingdom in the northern region? Why don't they write about it? So one of the theories is that perhaps they wrote about them, they did not, they ignored them, because the Khazars were attracted to Karaism, rather than to Rabbinic Judaism. Karaism is a movement that... um, Garnered strength just about this time uh, under Anan ben David, in particular. We spoke about him a long time ago, um, and this was a a movement that uh, sought to delegitimize the oral Torah and to argue that the written Torah was the sole authentic source of Jewish religious information. And the Karaites, uh, we spoke about them also a little bit last week with Sadia Gaon, where the, um, the you know there was a lot of of uh, polemic between Karaites and so-called rabbinic or rabbinite Jews, so it could be that the Khazars adopted a more sparse form of Judaism known as Karaism. This was especially the uh, the argument uh, postulated by I. Abraham Furkowitz here, who is a somewhat of a controversial historian because although he was a specialist in uh, Khazaria, he also flirted with the uh, Greek Orthodox Church, and um, so that. To a certain degree, that uh, kind of delegitimizes him for many historians. But it's a fascinating story about him, but I think we're going to pass on it. So, there is a possibility that they may have been originally Karaites, and then later became Rabbinites. Because, you know, there's an ongoing flux between these two movements. The Karaites grow in some times, shrink in other times. And it could be that they were, you know, you had a very thin, a uh, superficial conversion in the 8th century and by the time we get to the 9th century you know there's more information about what's going on and uh, many some of the khazars um eventually converted to a Rabbinic Judaism, as it were. We don't have a lot of details about this. We do have some Christian texts that indicate that when they visited the region, the Jews were practicing a whole host of, or the Khazarian Jews were practicing a whole host of, of habits that were associated with the Rabbinites. So that's also partial as well. This is a, another archaeological find. It's a belt buckle. Um, it has nothing especially Jewish about it, but I kind of liked it. So I stuck it in the lecture like that. Okay. The um, the decline of the Khazaran Empire. Um, you know, I forgot to mention one other kind of interesting things. Maybe I'll mention it right now. Actually, it makes sense here. Um, the whole story of the conversion of the Khazars to Judaism finds itself in a very important document called in Russian the Povest Ramianyak Let, the Chronicle of Bygone Years, which is the, the main source for uh, medieval Russian history. Uh, it's a 13th century document um, that describes the history of the world uh, with special emphasis on the conversion of King Volodymyr of Kiev to Christianity in the year 988. And in the Poet's Remeni Akliat there's a discussion of how King Volodymyr was a pagan and he was wondering about, you know, what should he do? And so he invited four representatives of world religions to debate with each other in Kiev. Uh, The four were uh Khazarian Jews, which is of course our interest, uh Muslims, and then two different kinds of Christians. The Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox. And they have, you know, this long ongoing debate. And the this, this story is almost identical to what we have of King Joseph, and similar to what we see with um, with Yehuda Alevi's account. However, as you can imagine... Uh, the Eastern Orthodox Christians win the debate. The, uh, the Roman Catholics don't have a chance. In fact, they get some of the worst treatment. The Muslims are treated just horribly by the, the church author of this document. And the Khazarian Jews almost, almost make it. Meaning King Volodymyr, after he hears what the Khazarian Jews have to say, he basically says, well, that's it. You know, you guys are the best. I really, I think we should become Jewish. And uh, he says, but listen, before I become Jewish, can you tell me a little bit about your homeland? And the Khazarian Jews say, unfortunately, we have been exiled from our homeland for almost a thousand years now. We've been punished for our many sins, and that's why we don't have the land of Israel. And Volodymyr, at that point demurs, and he says, oh, wait a minute, are you serious? If you guys don't have a kingdom... I should convert to your religion? He says it like that too. He says, I should convert to your religion? I thought that was funny. Okay. Anyways, I also think it's funny that... Um, so that's how... Can you imagine what Russia would be like if they had converted to Judaism in 988? It would be a totally different story. But that's how close they came. Uh, he also came somewhat close to Islam. But um, you know what eventually turned him off Islam? He came very close What was it that made the Russians not choose Islam, according to the Povest? Any famous, uh, drinking. Thank you, Mr. Rodriguez. Absolutely. Ah. Right? That he says, basically, that's it. This is it. Let's make a lachayim. I think I'm going to become a Muslim. And they say, sorry. You know, (laughs) we don't make lachayim in Islam because we don't drink alcohol. And he says, what? That's not for us. He says, we Russians have to have our little cups. By which he means, like, you know, shot glasses. And so that's how close he comes to Islam as well. Um, and th- then the the, uh, the the church author of the text adds a few other salient details. Like, and besides, he says it's such a scary throwaway phrase. And besides, the Muslims tend to rub their beards with excrement, anyways. You know, which he just made that up on the spot, I guess, just to try and add a little color to it. Anyways, you do have Khazars appearing in lots of documents like this one, so there's like no surprise that there are all these Jews living in in Kiev. It's just one of those weird things that Jews themselves tend to basically ignore them. Only travelers will report on this exotic Jewish community, but otherwise it doesn't garner much attention. The decline of the Chassan Empire was probably uh, mostly because of their ongoing warfare with the... um, the Kievan Rus people, uh, which will be regarded by the Russians as their cultural progenitors, but also by the Ukrainians and by the Belarusians. So the, uh, they have these ongoing wars, and ultimately, especially when the Tatars come in from the east, the Khazarian Empire is overrun, and it disappears about the year 1240 and then it never reappears. Now what happens to all these Jews? What this by the way is a picture of Khazar burial mounds. You know, they have these they look kind of like, you know, just well, mounds. Yeah. That was a, so so what happened to them? These are now Pure suppositions. We don't actually know, but what seems to be reasonable is they probably simply assimilated into the surrounding peoples. They probably simply, you know, saw the end of their uh, their political identity and the the coherence of a Jewish ideology with the state, and uh, they simply stopped being Jewish and picked up being pagan like they were 500 years earlier. Um, the, uh, this, if this is true, it's indicative of the relative le- weakness of the conversion, that they did not really, you know, hold on to it very strong and fast, um, and they simply disappeared as a result. Some uh, theorists opine that they are the progenitors of various groups of Jews, uh, such as, let's say, the mountain Jews that trace their origins to this region. Uh, and these things are possible, but you know, in the absence of more verifiable data, it's impossible to say whether or not it is true. There is a, um, a theory, Arthur Kessler is associated with it, and some people who have a uh, a very, you know, uh, a, a biased agenda in particular, that in fact the Chazars are the progenitors of Ashkenazi Jewry. Meaning, you know, if you have a, just a look at Jews today, at least in terms of superficial racial characteristics, you've got a wide range from, you know, dark-skinned Africans, small number of Asian Jews, uh, Oriental Jews, um, and um, you know, North Africans with a kind of a Mediterranean complexion, and then you've got all these light-skinned, sometimes blue-eyed, blond-haired Ashkenazi Jews uh, who clearly trace their origins to the Rhineland. Yes.
0: I lived in Hungary for a few years, yeah. and the Hungarians claim that the Kazars are the origins of the ancient
2: Jews. The the, the Jews, the original Jews in Hungary, are Kazars. That's interesting. That's interesting. The, the our observation is that in Hungary, uh, the argument was that the Ancient Hungarian Jews yes. were the Khazarians to begin Hazarians
0: with. Okay. Emigrated, came to the Khazars and stayed there.
2: Well, that's that's definitely. I mean, hung everything about Hungary is exceptional. You know, the language is completely different, and uh, there's a, there's a theory actually that supports that um, because the Chaz or the Jewish community in, in Hungary um, was rather unique in that they're the only population of all of the juries of Europe who uh, feel it you know, it's absolutely obligated to cover every piece of furniture with plastic as soon as you get it. And so that could be they have Khazar origins, but yeah. so the uh but the there is this theory that the uh that the the Khazars are the origins of the Ashkenazim. Um, it's it doesn't have much weight to it. Um, the, there's no linguistic evidence of the Khazar penetration in Ashkenazi culture, although there are some words that the great Yiddish scholar Max Weinreich argued were Turkic in origin, like, for example, the word daven. Daven has no Hebrew root, and it has no Germanic root, so it doesn't come from Yiddish either. He argued it came from a Turkic root. It's not really related to Slavic either, so... There may be some little bits of Turkic in there, but there's no evidence otherwise to indicate that the Jews of Eastern Europe, not so much maybe Hungary, but certainly um, Ukraine, Poland, and so on, are from the Khazars. Uh, what is motivating a lot of people who propound this theory is that they hope that by displacing the origins of Ashkenazi Jewry, which were the, probably the most prominent Jewish population in Europe and in America, about three-quarters of American Jews are of Ashkenazi origin, um, they could somehow delegitimize the uh, the biblical ancestry of the Jews. In other words, by saying, you think you're descended from the forefathers in the Bible? Forget about it. You're actually a Hazar. You're actually descended from the conversions of the Khazars to Judaism. Um... And that's, in many cases, that's really what's motivating this particular argument. And not necessarily the scholarly data behind it. If you happen to wander around like some of the white supremacist websites on the web, which I don't recommend you do, uh, or at least you should definitely have a shower afterwards, but the the uh, the websites will frequently talk about, you know, today's Jews are not the real, don't think they're like the descendants of Moses and all those guys in the Bible. It's a completely different people that has overtaken their name and their heritage. Uh, the true Jews today are, of course, the Christians and us guys. And those Jews who claim to be Jews don't come from Jews at all. That's the argument. It's fairly specious, but um, nevertheless, it exists. So the legacy of the Khazars, as I mentioned, the trilateral debate it appears in several cultures. Yeah, I put Chinese food up there, but uh, the uh, <laughs> the trilateral debate appears in several cultures. So the story of the conversion of King Bulan uh, may actually have you know origins in reality, and it clearly had an iconic sort of stickiness that was absorbed by many other cultures, including the Russians. Uh, however, their demographic impact on later Jewish civilizations, and certainly their cultural impact, is highly attenuated. We have really no significant evidence of the Khazars ever passing through Jewish history, except through, you know, these scattered little bits of data in the Cairo Geniza or travelers accounts. Uh, we have no great Khazar authors, we have no great Hazar traditions that we can identify, and they simply uh, appeared uh, like a you know, bright flash on the horizon, and then they simply disappeared shortly thereafter. Okay. So that's that's about it for tonight. I hope you enjoyed the lecture. Next week is going to be a really big one. We're going to talk about a colossal figure in Jewish history, the great Moses ben Maimon, Maimonides, the Rambam. was a fascinating uh, life story and a tremendous con, uh, contribution to Jewish culture. So I look forward to speaking with you then. Thank you very much. I've recorded about 500 videos on Jewish history now, and one of the things that used to surprise me, unfortunately doesn't surprise me anymore, is that in the top 10 of popularity, uh, my handful of videos on the Khazar conversion uh, remain very popular. And at first I thought, you know, that's a really cool thing, but now I begin to think it says something unfortunate about humanity. Uh, So for this video and the next, which are going to focus on the unusual chapter of Hazar Jewry in uh, our larger project, I'm going to first speak about something that is frequently uh, posed as a question, and I'll answer definitively. The answer is no. Ashkenazi Jews are not Khazars, they are not descended from the Khazar people. Uh, If they have any connection with the Khazar, it is very, very tiny in proportion to the overwhelming whole, which is largely European and Middle Eastern in background. So let's take some time to uh, understand what the big controversy is about and what is the resolution to something which is a burning question for many people. First of all, what is the Khazar hypothesis? Although it is shrouded in mystery, most historians coalesce around the idea that a population in the region of the Caspian Sea, um, not too far from the Northern Black Sea, encompassing part of Southeastern Europe, converted to Judaism uh, sometime in the eighth century. They had come into existence in the sixth century as a proto-empire and then began expanding until they were finally defeated by the uh, people of Kiev and Rus that would be uh, based in uh, today's Kiev Ukraine uh, in the 10th century and then they basically disappeared so here's a map that shows you roughly where the Khazar empire would have stretched again we can't use like really firm boundaries but this is the general area Now, at the same time, more or less, you have the establishment of Jewish Ashkenaz, which is associated primarily with Germany, with the Rhineland, Uh, and we begin to see Jewish settlement there from somewhere around the 10th century onward. The name Ashkenaz is of biblical origin, but it is applied in the medieval period to uh, this region of Germany. Now, from what we know from lots of other sources, there's a pretty significant eastward expansion or migration of the Jews of Ashkenaz to Eastern Europe for reasons that I'm looking forward to discussing with you in later videos. But there's a lot of spread of Ashkenazi Jews to the east. And from there, they constitute the the largest single demographic chunk of European Ashkenazi Jews as a whole. Looking at this uh, outline here in yellow is basically where most Ashkenazi Jews trace their origins to. Uh, Of course, there's a big migration uh, to the Americas, particularly from Eastern Europe in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And uh, that's basically the migration that my own ancestors came from. And that's basically the story. The term Ashkenazi, again, derives from medieval Germany, although most of those Jews who use that term later migrated to Eastern Europe, and then from there, many of them to America, Israel, and so on. Uh, That's to distinguish them from other ethnic groups within the Jewish people, such as the Spartan, who uh, trace their origins primarily to the Iberian Peninsula. God willing, we'll talk a lot more about them shortly. Now, here's the Hazarian hypothesis since there is something of an overlap between the limits of the khazar empire which had some kind of connection possibly a conversion to judaism perhaps in the 8th century and the uh, population of Jews that by the time you get to the 20th century, the vast bulk of Ashkenazi Jews are living in Eastern Europe. The Khazar hypothesis says that the Jews that uh, call themselves Ashkenazim coming from Eastern Europe are not descendants of the German Ashkenazim. They are actually descendants from the Hazars, uh, and and that's the well, that's it in a nutshell. Now, why should we care about this is something that we'll talk about in the next video. But that's the essence of the Khazar hypothesis, that the Jews who originate from Eastern Europe are primarily uh, descended from this Turkic tribe living in Central Asia. Perhaps one of the most significant thinkers and writers on this period is Professor Shaul Stamfer of Hebrew University, uh, great scholars written quite a bit on Eastern European Jewish history, and he's published quite a bit on Khazaria in particular. He has a, a very jaundiced view of the entire conversion process as a whole, the entire conversion story, which I'll speak about in the next video. But he says there are a few really clear reasons why we can say that Ashkenazi Jews are not descended from the Khazars. First of all, there is no DNA evidence to support this. Now, if you go back in my earlier videos, uh, as I've been doing these over the last 10 years, there's been growing amounts of data, and you'll see slight changes even in my own presentation because of the appearance of new data. DNA evidence is one of the most exciting tools that historians have in their you know, uh, toolbox. And uh, when it comes to the question of uh, you know, biological descent as opposed to Halachic identity, Jewish identity by Jewish law, which is a different thing, although they tend to overlap like a Venn diagram, it's really clear that there's no DNA evidence or a very tiny element of DNA evidence to support the idea of a Khazar origin to Eastern European Ashkenazi Jewry. Now, one exception to that rule is the uh, professor Eran El who's written some interesting things on this, uh, but he remains controversial, and most scholars are not accepting the research that he's presented specifically on Khazaria. Now, without being a scientist and be able to get into the real nuts and bolts of this, what I've read about this is that he prepared in uh, 2013, I think it was first published, uh, an analysis of about 1,300 Y chromosomes, 1,300 people uh, looking at their Y chromosomes to try to see what the similarities were between Jews and about 75 odd other nationalities. Unfortunately, the sample was really, really small. Uh, Of the Jews, only eight fit the specific parameters that we're looking at right now that's a tiny number to really make huge statements about the vast majority of ashkenazi jews secondly more significantly the number of Chazar individuals studied were precisely zero because there are no Chazars today and in fact we haven't had any Khazars for about a thousand years. There has been no one walking around who claims Khazar descent to whom we can go to for genetic data. In other words, you can't compare Jews to Khazars if you don't have any Khazars to actually say, oh, you're a Khazar, great, let's take your DNA. Uh, So what he did was he essentially guessed, an educated guess, using Georgians and Armenians, which live roughly in the same area, but, with a thousand years of population movement, it's really hard to say that that's reasonable at all. So it's considered widely to be a very unreliable estimate. And uh, most scholars, particularly most historians, uh, are not accepting this limited data evidence to suggest that uh, Jews come from Azaria. Uh, Secondly, you know, we can pile on the burden of proof here. The second thing is there's absolutely no linguistic evidence of chazar influence on jews i mean one of the things that we would certainly expect to see is that jews would pick up chazar terminology in their yiddish uh, yiddish by the way is the uh, the overwhelmingly dominant uh, native language of the Jews who call themselves Ashkenazi, are uh, originating from Eastern Europe. At the turn of the 20th century, there was a census in the Russian Empire, and I think it was 98% of Ukrainian Jews, 97% of Jews throughout the empire, if I remember correctly, claimed Yiddish as their mother tongue. And there is no discernible evidence of a Turkic in yiddish uh, there are some interesting words here and there that are a kind of of uncertain derivation uh, There's a professor named weinreich who is one of the most important theorists of early yiddish who argues that the word davin which means to pray might come from a turkic origin but it's it's kind of up in the air absolutely yiddish is basically German. It's overwhelmingly German. Uh, arguments to the contrary that its its grammar is essentially Slavic is nonsensical to anyone who has studied all three language groups. If you've studied German, if you study some Slavic languages and you've studied Yiddish, you know that Yiddish is overwhelmingly German, written with Hebrew characters, with a significant borrowing of Hebrew Aramaic, both Jewish languages uh, and a certain amount of French and all the various words that that come along as the Jews are traveling through their migrations. Uh, the small elements of uh, Slavic grammar that are visible, particularly in the Eastern dialects of uh, of uh, Yiddish, which is not at all surprising given that we're talking about living in a Slavic area. They're not Turkic, they're Slavic, very different languages, and they're basically like uses of aspect and other finer grammatical forms. So, bottom line is Yiddish is way, way more German than it is Turkic. The Turkic elements, the Khazar elements, are vanishingly small if they exist at all. Third, There's no cultural evidence. I mean, where are the, you know, the recipes? Where are the folk customs? Where are the superstitions, the stories, the legends, the songs that one would expect to come from Turkic origins? We simply don't have them. In Ashkenazi culture, we have lots of Russian things, lots of Ukrainian, especially lots of Ukrainian, Polish, and so on. After a thousand years of living in the region, uh, we have evidence of German, of Latin, of French types of uh, cultural, uh, you know, accretions that follow the Jews as they travel. But we don't have any Khazarian things. So the you know the burden of proof is clearly on those who want to push this theory. The overwhelming amount of evidence suggests that the model of Jewish migration from Ashkenaz is exactly what happened historically. So then that brings us to the next question, where did Ashkenazi Jews come from? And I get this question a lot actually. So uh, this is uh, Doron Behar, who is a remarkable geneticist, who's really advanced the, the field quite a bit. And he's done some great studies of DNA and they, most, of them, most of them just appeared in the last few years. One of the most fascinating things that he discovered is that 40% of all Ashkenazi Jews are descended from precisely four women, apparently of European origin. uh, And there's some indication that they lived about a thousand years ago, or perhaps a little bit earlier, no indication they lived uh, like they knew each other, but uh, there are four specific women that seems to have had a tremendous impact on Ashkenazi Jews. Furthermore, statistically speaking, there are significant similarities between non Ashkenazi Jews like Sephardi Jews and Mizrahi Jews and so on uh, with Ashkenazi Jews. So in other words, it still seems to be one big family despite the superficial differences in skin tone and, and hair texture and so on. But Jews seem to be more or less one family. And there are significant distinctions between Uh, especially in Eastern Europe, between Jews and the peoples among whom they live. So in other words, this all basically fits with the common sense idea of the Jews moving from Western Europe into Eastern Europe. Uh, The kind of elements that Dr. Bihar was able to uh, map out include uh, something called genetic drift, which helps to account for some of the superficial presentation of Ashkenazi people as a layperson, my understanding of genetic drift is basically when you have and by the way i'll show you a y chromosome study in a second that shows a lot more about jewish males than jewish females um, this happens when as is very common and well documented uh, non-jewish women adopt judaism and marry into the jewish people this may be a much more pronounced conversion, uh, women converting to Judaism than men converting to Judaism. This helps account for the physical distinctions between, let's say, Mediterranean Jewry and Eastern European Jewry. You also have a phenomenon which is consistent with the historical record of a genetic bottleneck where you have a population of people that for a variety of reasons, which could be social economic political it could have to do with persecution massacres wars things like that but a larger group of people um, are suddenly shrunk over a period of time to be a much smaller population like a bottleneck forms and uh, that means that there are much fewer people from whom the uh, later ancestors derive their origins this helps explain the the fairly large number of genetic disorders that unfortunately afflict Ashkenazi Jews, like uh, uh, breast cancer and Tay-Sachs, which uh, may owe a lot to the fact that there was this bottleneck, perhaps around the turn of the millennium, that meant that the population of Jews living in Northern Europe that would later move to the East, uh, represent the basis of a much larger population. So the bottom line of all of this is that it's pretty much what we always were thinking, although Italy may be more important than most historians have thought. Have a look at this map here, which is also part of Dr. Bihar's research, and this is looking specifically at Levites on the Y chromosome. Now, Levites, like Kohanim, are uh, members of the Priestly family, and they are um and it 's only the males it 's passed down father to son. mothers do not pass down uh, the Levite connection, so looking at the y chromosomes of Ashkenazi Jews, he was able to determine that it appears that they are they do have origins consistent with a uh, middle Eastern uh, distant origin, and then a strong migration through the Italian peninsula to the Ashkenazic heartland in Germany. That would be numbers one through two in this particular map. And then number three is, as we expected, a large migration towards the east where most Ashkenazi Levites find their origins going back through that that original vector. And then as you can see, the kind of uh, the faded, line there of the extension towards the west along with the arrow labeled number four there is a a reference back as those ashkenazi levites begin to move to the west and in fact begin to form families with sephardic women and non-ashkenazi jews generally in the iberian peninsula it is Probably at the point number two on this map when those four mothers appeared Probably somewhere around the year 1000 and then are responsible for this huge expansion of Ashkenazi Jewry And as a result a tremendous popularity of Asian food now in America and so on (laughs) Now if you look at these, uh, the green lines here uh, this is the traditional view of the uh, uh migration of jews historically which there's a lot to say for this and it is, this does not contradict the historical model uh that we have well documented of jews moving their way across the coast of north africa but that particular route would not necessarily explain the origins of most ashkenazi levites in other words while jews may have been moving along that route number five they do not account for the large number of Levites in the Ashkenazi community, uh, and so uh, it's not demonstrated by the research that he has worked on. Nevertheless, we do have Jews moving along the course of North Africa, just not necessarily Levites that would end up producing lines among the Ashkenazi. It's so complicated to see this in so many ways, but you get the basic idea, right? Okay, so that's our Short answer: Ashkenazi Jews are not descended from the Khazars. Uh, they are descended from uh, the Middle East and possibly through a, an Italian vector. And there are four women, ironically, you know, the, uh, the Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah of Ashkenazi Jews account for almost half of all Ashkenazi Jews today. In the next video, let us actually go to Khazaria and try to figure out what did happen in the 8th century. What can we say about it intelligently? Okay, thank you very much for watching.